though. I did have my little clicker in hand and I was just like wanting to click it so bad. You are a agent of chaos, Danielle. I always, always just delete those immediately when I start editing. <laughs> I am sure you do. <laughs> There's another one. Sorry. That was accidental. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Book Retorts. I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast about sharing your weird media finds with your friends. Yay. Yay. You're so happy to be here, aren't you, Danielle? I am very enthusiastic today, Sam. You should be, Danielle, because guess what? It's what? time. It's time for... It's time. It's what? time for the piece of media that could arguably have been the one that started this whole endeavor. That weird black and white movie that we watched when we were like 16? <laughs> no, that didn't quite get us to here. I'm talking a little bit later than that, Danielle. Yeah, I don't remember anything past that point, Sam. Really? You don't remember the 1989 Dan Simmons book, Hyperion? Uh, no, not that well, to be honest. <laughs> Good, which is why I'm doing it now. So just to provide the proper context, oh I was reading this book maybe, I, I only apologize, I was reading this quadrilogy maybe a decade or so ago, and I was telling you about it, and that's when we had the idea that maybe us telling each other about this stuff might be interesting to other people. I still think the jury's out on that, but here we are. <laughs> we have a very loyal fan base, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> So I figured it's time to bring this one in, and it's been something I've been dreading, because not only is this book massively complicated and just absolutely bananas. It's nonsensical. It didn't make sense then. It's certainly not going to make sense now. <laughs> it is crazy. It's very, I find it very interesting. I enjoy it, but it is absolutely crazy flakes. Was that the last time you read it? Was when yeah. you, we talked about it? Yeah, it's been a while, so I, I'm coming to it fresh as well. Well, less fresh than you, but that's always the case. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> So to make this epic piece of four very large books fit into our podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different, I think. Okay. I'm not going to do all 20 parts in a row. That's just insanity. So we're going to stick to our normal schedule of every other week. I'll just be doing Hyperion every other week until it's done or I have to take a break. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> like be over it you're gonna be like two-thirds of the way through and you're like okay i need a break everybody's gonna be like wait what happens i need to do some dumb animated movie from the 70s and then get back to our period <laughs> looking forward to this yeah this no, will either um, draw listeners in or throw them all away <laughs> it was nice knowing all of you <laughs> yeah well that's why i'm hoping we do it every other week so that if they don't like what i'm doing at least they'll have a respite every other week with what you're doing <laughs> But if you don't like what I normally do and usually like what Sam does, we're sorry. <laughs> to be fair, Daniel, this is like the most quintessentially Sam book I would do on this podcast. Absolutely. If you, don't, if you like what I do in general, you're going to love this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Let's get to this. Let's see how much uh, I remember, which the answer is literally nothing. <laughs> so I'm going to, again, preface this as I usually do by saying I'm going to be breezing through all of the really deep prose and backs. Like, there's a lot of world building in this story that I simply will not have time for. And a lot of really detailed and intense descriptions that I will not do justice to. So, in lieu of starting this out with a short description, Danielle, which would not do very much for either of us, mm -hmm. I think I would have you read the first couple of paragraphs from the prologue of the book, just to introduce everybody to the style of this book, and because I think it'd be funny. Okay, let's do it. I can't believe how much you talked about this book and how little I remember it. That's I, I do, Danielle. Part. You remember very little of what I tell you. <laughs> That's not true. I remember a lot of the normal things. I do not remember the in-depth analysis of everything you've ever read or seen. <laughs> and yet, here we are doing this for a podcast. <laughs> and to be fair, I don't remember much of what you tell me about the media you watch either. So it's, it's a fair thing. All right. Uh, the hege hegemony? Hegemony? Hegemony. Hegemony? Really? That's like one of those words I've seen, but not actually heard. <laughs> I mean, I could be wrong. There are a lot of words in this book, Daniel, I'm going to get wrong. There's a lot of like Latin-based stuff and weird 
So hegemony is my best guess. Uh, our, our listeners will correct us, I'm sure. <laughs> That's true. The hegemony, 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 the hegemony, hegemony. Sure, go for hegemony. <laughs> the hegemony console sat on the balcony of his ebony spaceship and played Rachmaninoff's Prelude in C sharp minor on an ancient but well maintained sine wave, while great green sar- saurian things yep. surged and bellowed in the swamps <laughs> below. A thunderstorm was brewing to the north. Bruised black clouds silhouetted. Bruised black clouds silhouetted <laughs> hard, a forest of giant gymnosperms. <laughs> gymnosperms. Yeah, Danielle, Danielle, I want to stop right here to say this is literally your first introduction to this book when you start reading it. It's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> While stratocumulus towered nine kilometers high in a violent sky, lightning rippled along the horizon. Closer to the ship, occasional vague reptilian shapes would blunder into the interdiction field, cry out, and then crash away through indigo mists. The council concentrated on a difficult section of the prelude and ignored the approach of storm and nightfall. The flatline receiver chimed. No, 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 no. Try that word again. The flatline receiver chimed. It's not flatline. Oh, the fat line. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to this book with all its weird science fiction jargon. I love it. Fatline receiver chimed. The council stopped, fingers hovering above the keyboard and listened. Thunder rumbled through the heavy air. From the direction of the gymnosperm. That's a terrible yeah. word. You think you thought cooey was bad <laughs> from Ice Planet Look, This is an actual like biological term, not some made up gross word. I'm gonna it's put that up. It's still there. like a real gross word. It's somehow worse. <laughs> I mean that's fair. I can't argue with that from the direction of the gymnosperm forest there came the mournful ululation (laughs) (laughs) this is this book is why i love this book a lot it's really kind of fun ululation of a carrion breed pack somewhere in the darkness below a small brain beast trumpeted like a small brain that's the description the author went with the small brain beast trumpeted its answering challenge and fell quiet the interdiction field added its sonic undertones to the sudden silence the fat line chimed again. Dan said the council and went to answer it. So, Danielle, what do you think your first introduction to Hyperion? Um, I mean, it's it gives you a really good idea of... It's very uh, evoking of an image, I guess I would say, and color scheme. Yeah. No, this book has a lot, like I said, of really good atmosphere and detailed descriptions, which I will breeze past because we don't got time for that. Yeah. But I wanted our, our audience to have that taste just to get a sense of what this book is like because it's very dreamlike in many ways. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that is the introduction to Hyperion. I will proceed from there with our prologue. So the console, he goes to play this transmission and it's a husky woman's voice who informs him, you have been chosen to return to Hyperion. He calls it a fat line squirt, which I think is great. <laughs> That's even grosser. <laughs> I know. It's so good. <laughs> Apparently, this fat line squirt came from Tau Ceti Center, the administrative world of the hegemony, and the consul knew the sender was Mina Gladstone, the CEO and commander-in-chief. She goes on to say that he's been chosen to go to Hyperion on a Shrike pilgrimage, along with six others selected by the Church of the Shrike and confirmed by the All-Thing. What is the Church of the Shrike or the All-Thing, Danielle? I don't know. Um, We'll find out maybe this book, maybe another one. Who knows? <laughs> Shrike, like S-H-R-I-K-E? Shrike, like the bird, yeah. Okay. It's like the bird. Oh, okay. Like the strike bird. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) The commonly well-known strike bird. Oh, they're stri- all right. What up there? Strike birds are awesome. They basically will impale insects on barbed wire or cacti or things, and then eat them later. It's they're vicious. It's great. Yes, I'm not sure they're as commonly well known as you think they are, Sam. Uh, to be fair, I did not know of them until I read this book and looked it up because strike man, what a thing. <laughs> okay, moving on. Uh, yeah. So anyway, confirmed by the all thing, and that there's evidence that the time tombs are opening soon as the anti-entropic fields around them are expanding and the strike is ranging further afield. So there's going to be a lot of nonsense science fiction jargon thrown at you in the beginning of this book, Danielle. All of it is somewhat important for later, so I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to stay present, but already my brain's drifting. <laughs> Danielle, I need you here for me. I can't let you get too I'm far off my I'm so hard, everybody. <laughs> you can't just like tune out and fall asleep on me. I wasn't falling asleep. I was thinking about shrike birds. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, they're pretty cool. I can't deny that. All right. So Mina Gladstone goes on to say that they sent a force, capital letter force, colon, lowercase space, 
So not Space Force, but Force Space Task Force <laughs> from Parvati to evacuate people from Hyperion. But with a time debt of more than three Hyperion years, it might not arrive in time. So this is not explicitly said in the book, but I'm just going to lay it out here anyway, that the time debt is the difference in time it takes for you to travel someplace and the relativistic time dilation of that. So what it means is this is probably not a good time to do this, is it? <laughs> I'm listening. Time Basically, debt. when you travel at, at high, high speeds through these spacecraft at like ultra light speeds or, or faster than light speeds, it might take you a few weeks to get someplace, but in that same time, many years might have passed in standard time relative right. to people who are not on the ship with you because of, you know, relativity. Okay, so, so I need to catch up. So there's, they're going on a pilgrimage. There's six people that are- Seven be- total. Seven, okay, seven total that were supposed to go on this pilgrimage according to Mia something. Mina, Mina Gladstone. Sure, Mina. She's the CEO of Hegemony, Danielle, get it right. <laughs> I couldn't even pronounce the word hegemony, so I don't know why you think I'm going to remember Mina's name. Look, I'm going to pronounce it right, but at least I'm consistent. <laughs> um, I won't be. Uh, <laughs> and the, who's the main person? The consul. Consul, does he have another name? Uh, not that I know of yet. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> And so she's saying that they've sent a space, a force space task force from Parvati <laughs> to evacuate. No, what a what a sentence that is <laughs> to evacuate people from Hyperion. But they'll have a time debt of three Hyperion years. So it'll take them three years of Hyperion time to get there, even though it'll take them a few weeks of actual travel at, at Got it. over light speed. Why are they evacuating Hyperion? Because the time tombs are opening. I missed that part. Sorry. That was probably what I was thinking about the Shrike birds. I was telling you that they were confirmed <laughs> by the Church of the Shrike and the all thing and the evidence that time tombs are opening because the anti-entropic fields, remember those, around them are expanding. Okay. Yeah. But there was just a bunch of nonsense words so that you expect <laughs> me to remember literally any of that is crazy. Danielle, there will be an exam after this podcast. And uh, yeah, look forward to next week's or week after summer. Two weeks, Danielle. It's every other week. Good luck. It's even worse. I know. It's unfair to you, but there's really no other way to make this book oh, work. Oh, gosh. That would be awful. I can already feel it. I should take notes. I guess I know. Danielle, the prologue is probably the worst for just sheer density of nonsense that's not explained. So okay, once we get through it, we're not in clear waters, but we're at least better. All right. Hang in there, everybody. Didn't this just become a TV show? or something Maybe there is something, something about them trying to make a tv show for it, and okay. that's one of the reasons i was excited to get back to it because Got boy it. that's gonna be one insane tv show i really hope yeah because i remember hearing that and thinking that i thought the plot was so incomprehensible that i couldn't imagine it being a tv show yeah i, I don't know what they're gonna do with it but it'll be amazing i hope Anyway, so the problem with the, the Force Space Task Force, I'm going to say that as many times as possible, is that they'll take them three Hyperion years to get there, which might not be in time to evacuate people. Also, there's an ouster migration cluster of thousands of units that has been detected approaching the planet. But for what reason, to control Hyperion or to attack the world web is unknown. Uh, I have a question. Why yeah, would three years not be too late? Well, they, they think the time are opening. They're not exactly sure when in the next, you know, X number of years. And they're hoping they can oh, get there. Oh, it hasn't already they... happened. They just it, they just know what's going to happen at some point. Yeah, they see the anti-entropic fields are expanding, which is indicative, apparently, Got of the it. time tombs opening. Okay. And then there's some kind of possible scary force coming. The ouster migration. Yeah. Yeah, sure. That. Yeah. Again, none of this will be explained. <laughs> just like the ouster bird. <laughs> The Shrike you mean, Danielle? No. I'm just going to assume all the words of this are just actual animals. Well, you're going to love the next one because they're sending not only – so that they're worried that the ousters are going to attack the world web. And they're sending, in addition to the evacuation fleet, a battle fleet with a Farcaster construction battalion that's going to meet up with the evacuation fleet on the way to Hyperion. Okay. The console concludes that the Farcaster is the only way to hold off the ouster invasion and prevent them from uncovering the secrets of the time tombs. But committing so much resources to defending Hyperion could leave the rest of the world web vulnerable or that the Farcaster that's established near Hyperion could be a vector for the ousters to invade the world web if they seize it. Do we know what the time tombs are yet? No. Okay. I didn't I'll miss give that. you a hint, Danielle. I don't think I ever figured out what the time tombs were <laughs> when reading these books. Oh, no. They're tombs full of time. <laughs> They're, uh, gosh, I really don't know. It's, it's, it's so hard to remember. Uh, and there's a big time jump between the second and third book. So Great. Looking forward to this. So the CEO goes on to tell him that the Templars are sending the tree ship Yggdrasil, or, or Yggdrasil, again, I don't know, to transport the pilgrims to Hyperion, and that among the seven pilgrims are Saul Wentrob and Fedman Kassad, which yeah. I don't know who those people are, but apparently the console does. <laughs> They're well-known birds. <laughs> All of these people are well-known birds, yes. Saul Weintraub and Fedman Kassad are well-known birds. 
There also may be an ouster agent among the pilgrims, and if the ousters conquer Hyperion, the consul should at all costs seek to seal the Tyne tombs and eliminate the agent. So there's like nobody closer to the Hyperion that could like go in there and seal the time tubes? That, they're not sure they want to seal them, or that they can be sealed, I think. Like these, nobody knows what these things are, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> they just know that they're potentially opening? They're potentially opening and are very powerful. Oh, okay, sure. I'll tell you something that I think I learned further on in the book that I barely remember is the time tombs are traveling back in time and that when they meet up with our current time is when they open. Okay. <laughs> so like we're going forward in time. They're going back in time. When those two timelines- Are they know, sentient, the, the time tombs? Um, boy, Danielle, I can't answer that question. <laughs> okay. Because I don't know. That's I've literally told you the sum total of my knowledge of the time tombs at this point. I just want to know how they travel on their own is all I'm saying. <laughs> I, again, I don't remember- if that's true or not, I could be making that up. It's been so long. Okay. Well, continue on. Sorry, I'm sure we haven't gotten very far. <laughs> we're we're, the, we're almost to the prologue, Danielle, which is like four pages. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So the consul is reluctant to head back, having already suffered some terrible experiences on Hyperion as the consul of that planet. But he knew that none of the previous pilgrimages allowed by the Shrike Church had any survivors, apparently, or something. But eventually he decides, yeah, I'll go. And he powers up his ship and heads out to space for the rendezvous. End of prologue. I hope that cleared everything up. Yes. Clears mud. <laughs> okay. Great. <laughs> this book likes to like dribble out and world build like in media res, kind of. I'm okay with that. Yeah. It just makes you very lost for the first, you know, book or two. That's okay. I have a, a really high tolerance for being lost in books and TV shows, so it's okay. Excellent. Then you're going to love this. It won't mean I won't complain about it. I'm just saying I'll go with it. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. So chapter one, the console awakes from cryogenic fugue to be greeted by two crew clones and a tall Templar. So starting off strong with this chapter. <laughs> clones? Like, are they real? Are they fake? Are they I mean, they're robots? real clones. <laughs> I don't know what kind of clones. Human clones? They're just called crew clones. I'm assuming human, but, you know, that's all I got. How do you know they're clones? Because they he alike? calls them crew clones in the book. I don't know. <laughs> they're distinguishing features? I'm just curious. It doesn't elaborate. They're just called crew. That's like their designation. Okay, well. All right. <laughs> the Templar, whom the console recognizes Het Mastine, the captain and true voice of the tree, tells him they're five hours from Hyperion, and the other pilgrims have assembled in the dining platform. So already we've jumped ahead of basically three years of standard time and a few weeks worth of space travel time. Sure, but I mean, that's the best way to do that, obviously. Obviously, there's no other way to do that. <laughs> I'm just saying, other than spending time on the ship, how else would you spend that time? Jumping ahead makes sense. I mean, they were all in cryogenic fugue while they were exactly. going quantum, so they're all unconscious anyway. It made sense to me that you I, jump I ahead three years. I just a very, it's a very convenient plot device that he can use to jump ahead any amount of time. It's great. I love yeah, it. It's, yeah. Welcome to sci-fi. It's kind of genius. <laughs> So as they move through the tree ship, the console relays that these things are made of actual weirwood trees, which are a kilometer long, and they're turned into basically like living spaceships that are made space-worthy by erg-generated containment fields. Erg-generated? Erg-generated. What does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't ask you for help with anything. <laughs> Not in this book, no. I think ergs are creatures, maybe? I don't remember. It's been so long. We'll learn more about the tree ships later. Okay. But they're basically massive trees in space, which I find just endlessly entertaining. <laughs> so as they do a walk and talk, the console observes that since the tree ship dropped out of quantum and into sublight speeds, there should be thousands of passengers who have gotten up and are like touring the ship and exploring it, but it was empty except for the crew. And Het Madison reveals the pilgrims are the only passengers on the tree ship. So just six people on this massive ship. Mm -hmm. And tree ships are usually these large pleasure craft used for traveling by the rich between planets on a scenic trip that lasts a few months at best. But this one was committed to a six-year total time debt trip to Hyperion to ferry six people. So it's a massive cost investment. And even if they use the tree ship as an evacuation craft with the help of the evacuation fleet, it's a very huge risk for the ship to enter a war zone because it's one of only five of these ships in existence. Question. Yeah. Who first thought that they should put the trees in space? I'm guessing the Templars did. Just for fun. They were like, you know what we should throw in space? The trees. The tree. Or maybe it was like the first uh, true voice of the tree decided that was a good idea. <laughs> I just like the idea that they just like pick stuff up and we're like, let's see if it flies. <laughs> <laughs> if you can generate a containment filler on any arbitrary object, like, wouldn't you put a house in space? There's no wind resistance. So <laughs> exactly. like anything can go through space. <laughs> I just, I, I assume this was like drunken revelry and then it worked out pretty well. So they just kept using them. <laughs> Again, we may find the answers in a later book, but at this point, that's as good an explanation as any. Perfect. I'm going with it. 
It's my headcanon. So they reach the dining platform and are introduced to the other pilgrims. I'm going to give just a brief rundown of them. There's Father Leonard Hoyt, a priest of the old-style Christian sect known as Catholic, a young man in his 30s. There's Colonel Fedman Kassad, the butcher of South Brescia, a tall man dressed in forced black with no insignia. Named after a bird. Yes, after a bird, obviously. The poet Martin Salinas, a short, fat man with mobile features, and while he appears to be in his 50s, due to pulsing treatments, could be as old as 150 years. What are mobile features? Like, he's very expressive. Sure. His face changes a lot. <laughs> All right, let's go As opposed it. to being static. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I didn't write the description. <laughs> I didn't say it wasn't a good description. I was just <laughs> It makes just sense asking. to me. <laughs> We've already established things that make sense to you do not necessarily make sense to me and vice versa. That's very true. <laughs> There's Saul Weintraub, an old man holding a young baby, no more than a few weeks old, which is his daughter, Rachel. He's a scholar, and apparently his daughter and he were briefly famous in the world web for reasons that are, right now, not revealed to us. And he thought he'd just bring her along for fun. We'll get into his story, Danielle, <laughs> I believe me. There's Braun Lamia, a stocky detective, and it's also revealed that Het Mastin himself is the seventh pilgrim, as only a prime number group can make the Shrike Church-sponsored pilgrimage. Yeah, you know, those darn rules. Darn rules. <laughs> I don't know if they made up or something. <laughs> So as they sit to eat, Het Mastin shares that the Ouster fleet is only a few days behind them. And while Hoyt speculates that the Ousters may be nonviolent if they take over Hyperion, Fedman Kassad states that they will raise every city on the planet and assault the Earth. Like, they're going to be totally destructive. And he clearly has some history there. Mm-hmm. So still, you know, four hours or so away from orbit, they discuss how the consul has volunteered to ferry them to the capital city of Keats once they arrive. And from there, they will start their several days journey across the planet to the time tombs. And they don't just, like, land at the time tune because anyone who tries to take a spacecraft or some kind of shortcut to them they will land just fine but inevitably their ship will return automatically without them it'll be empty they'll be gone and there'll be no trace of what happened to them i know spooky Spooky. yeah very (laughs) scooby-doo i love it So with time to spare over the next few days, Saul Weintraub suggests that they get to know each other better, as their survival might depend on understanding each other and what kind of common thread has led them to be chosen by the church and the hegemony to make this pilgrimage, because there are millions of members of the Shrike Church who would you know, love to do this pilgrimage, but these seven people were chosen, and none of them are members of the Shrike Church, and all of them are have various or no faiths. So there must be some other kind of common thread that ties them to Iperion that makes them the chosen ones for this particular particular very important pilgrimage so this is when they start to play like party games and freshman year games and and they get to know each other that way i assume so danielle this book this first book is modeled on the canterbury tales where the pilgrims will start telling each other their stories that's less interesting than like a drinking game than truth or dare <laughs> spin the bottle well, if they i don't know <laughs> or whatever that'd be fun but i'm telling you he decided to go literary with it bummer <laughs> stupid hyperion <laughs> Hyperion could have been cool, man, but getting <laughs> drunk and partying. But no, you decided to go all Canterbury Wasn't Tales on me. Was a better way to get to know each other. <laughs> I mean, sure. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm not someone who knows a lot about team building exercises. I'll take your word for it. I've been to several team building exercises. None I of them know. involved truth or dare, to be fair. But <laughs> that's a good way to know your freshman colleagues in school. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so anyway, Saul suggests they all take turns sharing their stories to see if they can find a common thread, or at least pass the time. Oh, two truth and a lie. That would have been a good one. <laughs> no, because you don't want to have any lies. <laughs> I also mentioned that the legend goes that when they meet the Shrike, one of them will have their wish granted and the others will die. So, you know, good times. Wait, what? Why? <laughs> the Shrike just loves killing, Danielle. It's a killer machine. I'm so confused by the plot of this already. <laughs> The plot is these seven pilgrims are going on a pilgrimage to the time tombs which are opening and guarded by a monster called the Shrike. And the Shrike. How do they know that the Shrike does the one wish kill the others thing? They don't. This is like the legend so far. Oh, okay. Sure. (laughs) I have no idea. This is what they said, Danielle. I don't know if it ever comes back into play. (laughs) (laughs) But since I don't know, I feel obliged to let you know in case it does. Useless. Me or the book? <laughs> you and maybe the uh, that's book. That's <laughs> true. Yeah, well, mostly me. I'm not doing this book any justices. Uh, okay. While some object to sharing their stories, they all take a vote and decide to proceed, and they draw lots. And the consul is going like last, and he resolves that if it ever gets to his turn, he actually won't share his story. He'll just lie or get out of it somehow. But the first person on the list is the priest Leonard Hoyt. So Hoyt briefly leaves to retrieve some journals because his story involves another story. <laughs> so he has to tell that story to tell his story? Yeah, exactly. Oh, what a boring lecture. <laughs> so now we begin the priest's tale. 
titled The Man Who Cried God. All right. So, Leonard Hoyt was a young priest and recently ordained on the Catholic world of Pachum. Is how I look this word up? It's Latin. Is that right now? But he, or in the past, he was a young priest. He in the past. He's older now. Okay. He's 30 now, but when he was originally first ordained on the world of Pachum, when he was tasked with escorting the venerable Father Paul Duray to his exile on Hyperion. The Catholic Church had been in decline for some time as it existed on the outskirts of hegemony life, and Duray... He was being exiled for falsifying data from an archaeological dig so that he made it look like there was a Christian civilization on this planet that existed long before humans even left Earth, which might have been some way that could have been used to revitalize the Catholic Church in the World Web. Is this like set in the future something? Oh, massively in the future. Okay. Was that uh, not, I mean, no, it's not I was like just Star trying Wars. To fig- no, it wasn't that. I was trying to figure out how like Christianity tied in in that, like, if it was a completely different world building or if it was based on some kind of current humanity. No, so it's like, this is definitely based on current humanity. The Catholic Church has been in decline as other religions have grown up as humans have gone to space. And there's a lot of religion in this book. I'm going to put out there right now that I am not making any comment on any religion. It's just I'm relaying what the book is saying. <laughs> Got it. That was the only part that I remembered from this entire series was something about all the... Catholicism? Well, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All the parallels to it. That was the only thing I remembered. Oh, yeah. So when a Paul DeRay had cooked up this plot to falsify an archaeological dig to help revitalize the church, he'd been caught and basically excommunicated and exiled to Hyperion. Was that where they sent all the people who were exiled? No, he decided to go to Hyperion as like he chose that as his exile location. You know, one of the places on the outskirts that was approved by the church because there was something there he wanted to study, which we'll get into right now. That's a nice little exile. You get to pick where you go. Well, I mean... I didn't want to comment too much on the church, but we know that a lot of priests that get caught doing bad things in the current Catholic church are often sent to places that are not terribly bad. I know. I'm glad to see it's changed a million years in the future. (laughs) (laughs) So during the trip to Hyperion, which incurs a four-year time debt for the priest and Hoyt after only a few weeks of travel, DeRay tells Hoyt he's going there to study the supposed lost tribe called the Bakura, all descended from the colonists of a crashed seed ship from hundreds of years ago that were lost. It's also made clear that while Hoyt and most people now have implanted comm laws that connect them to essentially a galaxy-spanning internet called the Datasphere, DeRay uses an external comm lock because he's old. <laughs> also, again, I want to point out, this book was written in 1989, and boy, does it really get into the dangers of the internet, and I think it's very prescient. <laughs> well... The internet's very dangerous, it's fair. <laughs> so Hoyt drops off DeRay and turns around to head back, which is another four years of debt, so a total of eight years round trip of debt. But once he arrives on Pactum, he's told that Father DeRay has vanished for the last four years and has not been heard of. And so he volunteers to turn right around again and head back to Hyperion to go find DeRay for another <laughs> eight years, another four years of travel. I mean, what's time travel if it's while you're asleep? Who cares? Yeah, just going back and forth. It's not even that he's, you know, asleep for it. It's only like five weeks of travel for him, but it's four years in the in the relative to the rest of the universe. Well, if you don't have any friends or family or anything, what does it matter? Good point, Danielle. <laughs> so after seven months on Hyperion, he discovered the fate of DeRay and found DeRay's journals. And so the journals here are going to go into what happened to Father Paul DeRay. And there's a lot here about DeRay's journey where he is describing the planet and the different continents, so like Aquila and things like that. And I'm just going to sort of skip over most of that because it's interesting, but we do not have time to go into all the details of the geography of Hyperion. I'm sorry. <laughs> are these the books that he brings forward or the journals? Yes, exactly. Got it. So anyway, I'm going to skip a lot of the color and all of the insight to Paul DeRay's thoughts as I just try to focus on a plot. <laughs> Okay. So to get to the cleft in question where the Bakura supposedly are, DeRay has to go through the flame forest composed of Tesla trees. Just Gosh, I love this book. Every sentence is just nonsense. It's so good. Isn't it great? <laughs> Tesla trees, how badass does that sound? <laughs> So the, the flame forest, the Tesla trees are active and impenetrable for several months, uh, and then they go quiet for a few months and then back to being active. So when he finally arrives at this town, he gets a guide called Took to help him navigate the forest. So they trek through the forest, which is composed of Prometheus plants and Phoenix and Amber Lambents, and they do see a few Tesla trees, which are these 100-meter tall trees with large bulges near their tops and radial branches. So one night, the forest basically explodes, where lightning starts striking the Tesla trees over and over again, and the energy that's accumulating in the Tesla trees, they basically soak it all up, and they release that gathered energy, hundreds of lightning bolts in seconds, 
basically just setting the forest on fire and causing all kinds of havoc. So they killed themselves? No. So Duray and Tuk are protected by a circle of arrestor rods, like lightning rods they've set up around their camp. Though one of their pack animals panics and flees and immediately killed by lightning strikes, like dozens of strikes. How come the Tesla trees don't die from their own lightning strikes? Danielle, I do not have answers to these questions. I mean, wouldn't they? I don't know. They're Maybe trees. since they're the source of the charge, they're not the targets of the charge themselves because you want to find the difference in charge. Yeah, but if, where, the tr- if, all, if the forest gets lit on fire, they can't prevent themselves from being burned, I Maybe imagine. they're like fire resistant, like, like redwoods. Maybe you should have put those into space. <laughs> they're not big enough, Danielle. <laughs> So basically, the restaurants protecting them, but they're you know not really designed to hold up for more than a few hours. So they barely make it through the night alive. And in the quiet morning, they quickly move camp out of the flame forest. And as they move, Duray notes how in the violent storm it helped create new life. So it's like a forest fire in the sense that all the ash and clearing of old growth made room for new life and new growth. Sure, but not immediately. Do they see new life like right that second? Yeah, like some of the phoenix plants or whatever start blooming immediately. Like, oh yeah, fire, whatever. I'm into this. <laughs> so the next day, which is day 88 of his travel log, so I've skipped a lot, Duray wakes to find that Tuke has been killed, his throat slit in the night, and he has a vague recollection of hands caressing him, and specifically the crucifix he wears. It was probably the Tesla tree. The Tesla tree slit the guy's throat, yes. Instead yes. of using the lightning. You don't know, Sam. They can apparently do anything. <laughs> they mostly do lightning, Daniel. I'll put it out there right now. <laughs> well, you don't know. You can't remember the rest of the books. Well, I do know what happened to Took because I'm about to tell you. So DeRay panics, but eventually calms down enough to bury Took and go looking for the Bakura, though they find him first. A group of 30 or so of them find him, and he observes they are short, very bland looking, like featureless almost, hairless, and appear androgynous in crude brown robes that cover their entire bodies. All of them appear to be between 40 and 50 years old, and he also sees that they appear to be dull, quote-unquote, placid idiots. If they're kind of featureless, how do you know they're between 40 and 50 years old? I mean, that's just sort of what he's estimating based on their size. Eh, shenanigans. Look, I don't know uh, the whole detail of what they look like in person. Yeah, he apparently can figure it out. <laughs> just don't think so, but okay. Not like featureless, they're just very bland featured. Like, they're kind of forgettable. Okay, sure. So he talks to them through the translation function of his comm log, which is very convenient. We love those. Yep, and the comm log identifies their language as a corruption of archaic seed ship English. So Earth English. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, seed ship English, Danielle. That's why they specified it here. I know. This is the only book where you can say Earth English and it actually might make sense. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point. Uh, they should have taken a note from this. The Bakura ask him, or basically say, you are the man who belongs to the cross shape. And Duray confirms this, and they all genuflect to him before taking him by the arm and leading him to their very primitive village for an afternoon nap, which they do every day. I mean, I wish I had an afternoon nap every day. Oh, believe me, it's the best <laughs> life. So over the next few days, Duray learns that the Bakura call themselves the Three Score and Ten and appear very simple-minded, not answering a lot of his questions or answering with a lot of circular logic. Like, he eventually asks if they have killed Tuk, and the one he calls Alpha says they did cut his throat so he would die the true death. When asked why, Alpha says he died because they cut his throat. And asked why they cut his throat, they say was that he could die, and so on. So their conversations go basically in circles. That'd be frustrating quickly. It's very frustrating. It's frustrating reading it, Danielle, I'll tell you what. When asked why they didn't kill him, they answer, you cannot be killed because you cannot die. You cannot die because you belong to the cruciform and follow the way of the cross. But other than that basic idea of cruciforms, they seem to have like no concept or, or connection to Christianity that he can determine. Mm-hmm. This is a lot. I'm sorry, Danielle. This is going to be a lot of dumping. No, it's okay. We're good. I'm following, mostly. Mostly. I know you're trying very hard, which is why you're not saying much. I'm trying. I'm focusing. Focusing so hard. Eventually, Duray learns that they have a routine. They go out foraging every three days, and every night they disappear down the face of the cleft, climbing down some vines, but they won't allow him to go down there after them. Otherwise, the Bakura have no interest, no industry. They have no relationships. They don't even seem to have a concept of property or homes. They basically just sleep wherever is convenient when it's time to sleep. They seem to be basically very dull and lack any kind of spark. So are they like holding him captive? No, but he can't leave because the the Tesla forest, the the flame forest, is completely active now. And it's absolute suicide to go back through it. Okay. They won't allow him to examine them with the medical equipment he brought with them. And they have an absolute taboo against nudity. All right. Anthropology, kind of done. <laughs> You fall asleep yet? No, I wasn't falling asleep. I was thinking that there were also like six more stories to go. So anthropology is not done. 
<laughs> there are definitely six more stories to go, but not all of them concern the anthropology of the Bakura. Sure. You say that now. Actually, Daniel, I gotta tell you, there are only five more stories. It doesn't deal with one of the stories. Okay. Sketchy. So the Bakura also have no names, no history. Is this all relevant later? Sort of. <laughs> Duray finally asks to go on a trip down the cliff with them, but they say no, he's not of the three score and ten. And if he tries it, they will slit his throat, and if he tries it again, they will kill him again. But I thought he couldn't die because of cruciforms and crosses. I don't know. <laughs> Daniel, I'm building the mystery of this, of this people here right now. So when I said they have no names, no history, no children, like he is perplexed by this because they seem very obsessed with this three score and ten number. So he, he asked them, about like, when did you have children? And they don't really understand what that means. And eventually they say that one may return only when one dies. And Duray speculates that they only breed to replace a member to keep the exact same number of people in the tribe, the three score and ten. What if you had like twins or something? Well, he doesn't really understand that because like for one, they're all basically the same age. So they do they like breed at certain intervals to keep clones? everyone in the same population? Clones. Sure. He doesn't really think there's <laughs> had cloning technology, but that's fine. <laughs> He also then speculates that maybe they, like, killed the children if they're born and they don't need a replacement. Sure. Why not? Or that they use some kind of weird contraceptive to keep the breeding at only specific intervals. Either way, he is very perplexed. I mean, yeah. But the important thing is that number 70 is the exact same number of colonists who crashed on the original seed ship. Ooh, mysterious. Layers like an onion. Mm, layers like a Tesla tree. <laughs> <laughs> keep it in universe, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> One day, Duray decides to sneak down the cliff to see where they go every day when they climb down that cliff. And so while the whole tribe is off hunting on one of their three-day foraging excursions, he climbs down... He returns and just scribbles some nonsense entries just beside himself with excitement, brimming with faith. And he finally relays in his journal that he went down the cliff and found a path and steps so worn as have to have been trotted by people for millennia. So millennia old steps. Mm -hmm. Eventually finds under an overhang intricately carved double doors in the stone of the cliff, flanked by stained glass windows that aren't really made of glass, made of some unknown material that kind of shimmers and moves with light. So like it's a swirling stained glass, not like a static stained glass. Okay. Inside, he finds a space larger than the great replica of the Basilica of St. Peter that's constructed on Patchum. So that replica holds 50,000 people, but the place he finds in this cave, in this cliff, is larger than that. For all 70 of them. Yeah, exactly, right? Like, <laughs> it's preposterously large. In the center is a massive altar, five meters square, with a giant cross on it. DeRay falls to his knees and prays. This was the evidence of a pre-Earth Christian civilization that he'd been tried to fabricate earlier, but this time it's real. Maybe. Well, I mean, it's real, but whether or not it's pre-Christian faith or not is yet to be determined. Are they ghosts? Ghosts? You yeah. mean the, 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 70. Mm -hmm. the three score and 10 are ghosts? Yes. No, they're very physical people. Are they immortals? Danielle, they're, <laughs> they're very physical people. Let me get into this. <laughs> so... He takes hollow recordings of this whole thing to like bring it back to the church and be like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. This is it. And he resolves to leave as soon as the flame forest quiet down so he can pass in, the, in like a month or two. There's like a cycle to the flame forest? Yeah. It's like a couple of months they, they, they go up and then a couple of months they're quiet. A couple of months they go up and then a couple of months they're quiet. What is with the weird Tesla trees? I mean, I want one in my house. <laughs> Do you? I mean, it would be a, it would be certainly be a conversation piece. You would die. The Tesla tree would remain. I would put like a Faraday cage around it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> However, while bathing one day, one of the Bakura see him shirtless and freaks out. At first, DeRay is like convinced that he's violated their taboo against nudity, but he's seized by the Bakura and they quickly strip him. And then they start discussing killing him since he's not of the cruciform. All must die the true death except the three score and ten. Mm -hmm. And so they're about to be in death with rocks and he holds up his crucifix and yells, I follow the cross. This causes them to hesitate and they argue some more like, you know, he follows the cross, but he's not of the cruciform. That circular arguments happen. And then DeRay tells him that he went down to the basilica in the cliff and he prayed at their altar and he wishes to be of the cruciform. So... The Bakura decide to discuss this and lock him up for three days while they discuss what to do with him. After three days, they haul him out and they haul him in front of a bonfire they built on the cliff where they burn all his clothes and equipment and give him one of their robes. And the only thing they leave him are his medical scanner and his diaries. Do they kill one so that they're not 71? Uh, no, not yet. <laughs> give it time. <laughs> so they take him down the cliff past the basilica, and further down still, all the way down, kilometers down this path, all the way to the base of the cliff where there's a river. In the wall of the cliff down there near the river is another opening. This one leading to Hyperion's labyrinth. So... There's a labyrinth on Hyperion? Yep. 
So Hyperion is one of nine known labyrinth worlds, Danielle. Did but, you know that? No. Why? <laughs> why would there even be one labyrinth world? <laughs> well, there are nine of them that are known so far, and they all have several things in common. One, they're all tectonically dead. They all have labyrinths. <laughs> they all have labyrinths. These massive underground labyrinths composed of tunnels built many thousands of years ago for unknown reasons by unknown people using unknown technologies, like these meters long, perfectly square, smooth tunnels. And nothing has ever been found in a labyrinth that gives anyone clues as to why they exist or who built them. So they think that some, like the same people built all nine. Theoretically. And then they all basically look exactly that have the same kind of construction hallmarks. So unless nine different species decide to do it all independently. You never know, Sam. Sci-fi. Never know, but that seems <laughs> that's not their conclusion. I just was clarifying for my own understanding why there are nine labyrinth worlds. I don't know why there are nine, Daniel. There just are. <laughs> <sighs> okay. Labyrinth. I do like a good labyrinth. I know. I thought you'd be excited to see that there are plant-wide <laughs> I mean, labyrinths I'm excited about the labyrinth, these planets. But I just, why? <laughs> Because they're cool. To, why is something not just be cool? It could just be cool. That's true. So he has to go into the labyrinth. So he have to survive the labyrinth to be one of the 70? He has to fight the Minotaur, yeah. There's a Minotaur? No. <laughs> <laughs> you can literally say anything, Sam, but I would believe you. <laughs> I, I, I told you this was, I told you this was uh, Canterbury Tales, not Theseus. <laughs> <laughs> but we should be a Minotaur. That'd be cool. Anyway, they lead Dure just inside this hole in the lab. So this hole is that's in the labyrinth is not natural. Like this was, you know, broken into the tunnel. This wasn't intended for the labyrinth. And just inside the labyrinth walls, they are rough because they've been exposed to the elements and have started to erode. And once they get a little ways inside, so they no longer can see any light, all of the Bakura kneel and extinguish their torches, and the walls of the tunnel start to glow with hundreds of crucifixes that appear on the walls. This book is so freaky. <laughs> Those crucifixes are all different sizes, some a few centimeters, some a few dozen centimeters, and they all appear to be organic, like living, like coral, essentially. They look like, uh-huh. He describes them as coral-looking, living and they're warm to the touch. Creepy. Yeah, very creepy. That's when Dure sees a shrike appear out of the darkness. The shrike is three meters tall, metal, covered in spikes from head to toe. Like, not just like pointy, pointy spikes that you might get from a Hot Topic belt, but like long, <laughs> curved, like a, like a thicket of spikes. Uh-huh. With red eyes and strangely jointed limbs. It walks past Bakura, and then it noses Dure, and it disappears, and then it reappears right next to him with its spiked arms around him, like in a hug. And it's like, boo! <laughs> well, not really. It just vanishes. Poof. Gone. It's the Minotaur. It is the Minotaur of the Labyrinth. I'm, I'm, I'm so excited for the Minotaur, Daniel. <laughs> so then it vanishes without a trace, and the Bakur arise, and Alpha takes a crude thong, so like a, a piece of string, to be clear, <laughs> and ties it around one of the crucifixes he peels off the wall, you know, like a, a few centimeters across, and hangs that around Paul Doré's neck. So did these, like, crucifixes grow on the wall, or did somebody put them yeah, on the wall? they grow. Weird. Yeah. Don't like that. No. <laughs> They leave, but as they're climbing the kilometers back up the path, Dre passes out, and they presumably carry him back up to the top of the cliff, because the next thing you know, he wakes up two days later, and he goes to take a bath, and that's when he realizes he can't remove the cruciform. creepy. His skin has grown around. It's like grown into his body, into his chest on his sternum. This is his fault for saying he wanted to be one with the cruciform. I know. I mean, really, (laughs) he asked for this. So it's embedded in his chest and he can't peel it off his body. He rushes to scan himself with a med scanner and he sees that there are fibrous tendrils radiating out from the cruciform all throughout his body and into his brain even. Gross. But the med scanner shows that all of that, including the cruciform, is his flesh. It's all his DNA. Mm-hmm. Can he leave the planet or would he die? What? Is he like part of the planet now? Like if he leaves the planet, is he oh, going to Oh, Daniel, we're about to get into this. <laughs> so over the next few days, he learns that if he tries to leave the cleft area, the cruciform will give him massive pain, like a heart attack, until he turns back. So he's basically stuck there now. Bummer. Now with the cruciform, the Bakura sort of let him examine them. And they have no genitalia to speak of, just nothing at all. They are completely Ken doll down there. So they don't get to have new babies. Yeah, no new babies. And that's when Alpha dies. Randomly. He slips off a cliff and tumbles to his death. Is that like faded because I have to have 70? <laughs> oh, Danielle, no, it's not. <laughs> just <that> curious. <laughs> 
Duray retrieves the body, and the Bakura just seem unconcerned with the death of Alpha. They take the body down to the Basilica and leave it before the altar, and they all take off, but Duray stays to watch. And what he sees in the next three days is freaky. The cruciform seems to, like, break down the body of Alpha. He describes, like, a time lapse of decomposition. Mm -hmm. And the remains of Alpha's body are then reconstructed by the cruciform. Like, the flesh flowing to reform the body, and it recreates him over the course of the three days. Of course it does, because everything happens in three days. (laughs) Yeah, right? The recreation isn't quite perfect. Like, it it looks like Alpha, but also, like, a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So, the book doesn't get into this, but my speculation, at least at this point, is that it's like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy. Every time the cruciform resurrects somebody, it gets less and less human-like. It's like a, a less and less good of a job of doing it. So they do basically live forever. Oh, yeah. Like they reiterations have their... of the original 70. Yes. They are the original 70. They have existed here for the last 400 years, undying. What happens when they get to like so far beyond that that they're like not even remotely human that's a really good question yeah maybe we'll find out later books maybe because apparently we travel in time (laughs) (laughs) so he and alpha return to the village and no one seems to be like concerned about like oh yeah cool just a normal thing that happens it would be so the cruciform does grant eternal life but at the cost of your humanity so duray tries to cut the thing out of himself using a sharp rock but when he tries it the cruciform seems to hate pain and so it causes enough pain that he passes out long before he would have normally it's a tesla tree the cruciform is a tesla tree yeah it causes the issues but doesn't have its own issues. <laughs> like it can't be struck <laughs> no, no, by its own lightning. It causes pain as you're trying to cut it out and like cause it pain. <laughs> well, I think actually it's caused him to pass out. It doesn't actually cause the pain necessarily, mm-hmm. but it causes pain when you try to leave so that you can't leave. Yep, but you can't cause it pain. Tesla tree. Right, it doesn't let you. Oh no, it's it's totally a parasite. It doesn't want that to happen. <laughs> And so he also observes that another Bakura, like it breaks its legs. One of the other Bakura breaks its legs and the cruciform seems to like knock it out. Like it pumps a bunch of endorphins into the guy so it doesn't feel pain as sort of unconscious. But eventually after a couple of days, the other Bakura just killed the guy and let the cross recreate him, which seems to be an easier way to deal with the problem than to try to have his leg heal on its own with all that pain going on. <laughs> so did- Tense way to fix a broken leg, but okay. <laughs> I mean, if you're if you're if death means nothing to you, and it would take you a couple of days to repair your entire body, as opposed to just waiting the weeks it would take to make your leg better. Sure, if you've lost I the mean, sense of humanity and don't realize that you're losing more humanity by doing so, that makes sense. Yeah, exactly. It makes a kind of creepy sense, right? So the last death that he sees is where one of them falls out of a tree and breaks his neck, but it lands between two fire mantis nests. And the fire mantis, they strip the flesh bare, leaving nothing but a skeleton behind and the cruciform affixed to the sternum of the, of the skeleton. Mm-hmm. DeRay briefly thinks like, oh, that's the end of it. Like, there's no way that guy's coming back. You can't make matter out of nothing. Conservation of mass. Not going to happen. What would have happened if he'd gone and take the cruciform off this, the body and like throwed it away or something? You mean the dead body? Yeah. I know it's attached so, to the sternum, but if you, like, pried it off or cut it off. So what happens is the other Bakura, they go and retrieve the cruciform off of the skeleton. Mm-hmm. And later he sees that there's a uh, another Bakura that has two cruciforms in their flesh. And so what he speculates is that that new Bakura is going to start to grow basically to twice its size. Then it will die and two new Bakura will be created from the remnants, recreating the one who didn't have enough flesh to begin with that died originally. But will it just be two of the same guy then, or will it be... No. Like- Basically, it's like hosting the old crucifix on uh, your body. Right. And then when you die, the old crucifix will recreate its body that it had originally, and your crucifix will recreate your body. Sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Wild, right? <laughs> Duray is not happy. He's like, I am done with this cruciform That's what he gets wanted- for wanting to be part of it. <laughs> I know. Always read the fine print, right? <laughs> this is his own fault. So Duray resolves to set off into the forest to escape. Like he says, I-, I can handle the pain more than the cruciform can. I kind of push through it. But as he does that, eventually he seems to black out as he gets far enough away. And then he'll wake up crawling back towards the cleft. So he's basically like, you know, two steps forward, two steps back. He never makes it any further than he can initially. So Duray finally decides that, like, I guess I'm stuck here. He decides to build a chapel, I guess, to keep himself busy. Mm-hmm. And while mining stone for the chapel, he finds the arrestor rods, which the Bakura had stolen but not destroyed. The what? The rods? Oh, the ones the that arrestor hit, rods. That help the lightning with the rods. lightning. Yeah, the lightning rods. Mm-hmm. So after finishing the chapel and spending 438 days on his mission, his last log entry is about him setting off one more time into the forest. 
And I didn't go into a lot of detail about how they describe a lot of the plan of Hyperion, but that's the end of Paul Duray's story. So he goes off into the trees? That's the last entry in his log. At least. He's like, I'm going off tomorrow. Wish me luck. But and he then- can't make it that far, can he? Because of the crucifix thing? It's cruciform. Yeah, who knows? So as he finishes the journal, Hoyt tells the others that he arrived in Hyperion you know, eight years after DeRay was left there. And he followed DeRay, eventually hiring four skimmers to fly past the Tesla forest to the cleft. Although one of them is destroyed by the Tesla trees as they fly over the forest. He finds the Bakura and recovers DeRay's medical data and journals. And then he finds DeRay's body, burned to a crisp by Tesla trees and decomposing. Virtually nothing left. So the local leader of the nearby town was like, oh, those Bakura, they got to go. And so he uses... Were there still 70 of them? Still 70. The, the other... Did he get reanimated? Dray? Yeah. No, his body is a, is a massive charcoal. Yeah, what, but, but uh, what happened with his cruciform? I guess it was destroyed by the Tesla trees. So how did they get 70 again? He was 71. They always had 70. No, yeah, they had 71. I forgot. The other ones got reanimated. This is very perplexing. <laughs> that was the <laughs> whole purpose, <laughs> The whole point is they always have 70. They have three score and 10. That is their thing. Except when they had 71. But he wasn't really one of them. So the local leader of the nearby town is like, the Bakura gots to go. And so he used shaped nuclear charges to basically wipe out the entire cleft, blow up everything. And everyone has sort of kept the story of what happened to Paul DeRay's secret because how insane. Like, if there was an immortality granting cruciform on a planet, like, you know somebody would want that and, like, try to make a business out of it. Sure, but it's not like you laugh as yourself you like last as a weird shadow of yourself <laughs> i'm sure someone would think it'd be worth it <laughs> like they don't seem to have any kind of motivation so at some point like whatever your motivation was to last forever would disappear from you it seems to suggest uh maybe they think they could find a way around it okay like, you can't. okay well, i guess you know about these things danielle <laughs> the expert on hyperion <laughs> Tesla trees, I don't buy those. Cruciforms, <laughs> on board with them being sapping humanity, no problem. <laughs> all right, that's the story. So after Hoyt finishes the story, they are told it's time to head to the planet, so they all go to the console's ship, but Hoyt doesn't show up. You know what would gone faster than getting to know each other? Party games, Sam. <laughs> they got through <laughs> one of the people. They're like, let's get to know each other. They get through one. <laughs> one story in four hours. I mean, that is true. They at least know a little bit about each other if they had played games. On the other hand, Danielle, I don't think a party game would have revealed this insane story. <laughs> no, that's not the point, though. That's like those things come naturally if you do the party games first. At least then you'd have a good sense of strengths and weaknesses. <laughs> Never have I ever found the corpse of my reincarnated friend. See, you, like, like, I, this whole story could have been told in a different manner, Sam. You don't know. <laughs> I don't think <laughs> that play Pictionary or whatever, would, or Two Truths and a Lie would come up with this particular, like, oh, yeah, I'm going to share the story about the reincarnation and eventual horrible death of my friend. It would in a sci-fi novel for <laughs> pilgrims to Hyperion. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, you can write the, the, the sequel. The abridged the, the, version. <laughs> the abridged version of Hyperion where they all play party games. Uh, I'd read that. <laughs> you would write that. <laughs> People would read it. I basically told you the ultra bridge version anyway. That's true. My version was more fun. <laughs> well, we're about to get into more of it. So uh, Hoyt doesn't show up to the console ship. So the console goes to fetch him and he finds him writhing on his knees in his quarters. And FYI, the carpet is made of grass because tree ship. Of course. <laughs> it's great. I love that detail. So Hoyt manages to gasp, the injector malfunctioned, please. And the console quickly takes the injector that was lying in next to him and loads a new cartridge of ultra morphine into it. Because what's better than regular morphine, Danielle? Ultramorphine. Ultramorphine. That's right. <laughs> I love it so much. Super ultramorphine. Oh, uh, no, Danielle, let's not get too crazy. <laughs> Mega morphine is still a little ways off. But before injecting to Hoyt, he forces Hoyt to tell him the rest of the story. Like, he's like, tell me the rest of the story before I give you this. Tell me the <laughs> That's truth. That's not nice. Oh, he's not a nice guy, Danielle. <laughs> Did he take cruciform? So Hoyt eventually says that the skimmer wasn't destroyed by the Tesla trees. It was actually forced down into the cleft and the Bakura killed his companions because they did not wear the crucifixes. One of those companions was the wife of the local leader guy, which is one of the reasons he basically wiped them off the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. 
That's what they get, I guess. So the Bakura told him about the way of the cross and about the son of the flames. And they lead him into the flame forest where he finds a big Tesla tree where about four meters up, DeRay had used the arrestor rods to crucify himself on the tree. Like he drove them through his ankles and his wrists and his hand. And so he's now crucified himself to this tree on lightning rods. Does he rather die than have a cruciform? Basically... His, I thought, was pain drives off the cruciform. There's nothing more painful than being electrocuted or burned to death over and over again. And he had spent the last seven years being repeatedly electrocuted and burned to death, only to be resurrected by the cruciform over and over again. Bummer. His body was charred, unrecognizable, flesh and eyelids burned off, but he was still alive. And when Hoyt approached... Finally, the cruciform fell off and Duray smiled and died a true death. Because Hoyt's magical? <laughs> so the local leader did still come and rescue him and did kill the Bakura with nukes. But now Hoyt was suffering from intense pain that kept getting worse to the point where only ultramorphine can help. So the consul quickly injects him and he passes out. And under his robes, the consul sees the cruciform. She of told course. You. Told you. Yeah, of course. And he turns the priest over, and on his back, he sees another cruciform, presumably Duray's. How would he know to put them on? I don't think he did. I think they were put on him by the Bakura. Crazy. So the consul carries Hoyt back to his ship because uh, he's unconscious, and he thinks about how familiar this sensation is to when he used to carry his now dead son to bed. End of chapter one. That's a nice ending. <laughs> right? <laughs> what a way to go! <laughs> What an ending. (laughs) So I'm going to be kind of short with these, obviously, because I think there's no need to make giant chunks out of them. There's already enough insanity in each part of these. I don't need to (laughs) try to cram more in. It's fair. But there you go. There is the priest's story from Hyperion. That was a story. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Freaky, right? (laughs) How is it even worse than I remember it being? How is that? What do you mean worse? Like, scarier? Yeah, creepy. I don't know. (laughs) It's very creepy. Like, it is very spooky. Like, oh, yeah. like that. (laughs) Yeah, you are forced. It's like the curse of immortality. Like, all the bad parts of immortality, none of the good parts. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's like this weird devil's bargain, which is ironic because it's a cruciform, but I'm not getting into that. (laughs) I don't like that. Yeah, no, this book is extremely creepy, and it only gets weirder from here, Danielle. Did they destroy the temple when they nuked the whole area? Probably not. You mean the the basilica? Yeah. I presume so. But you don't know. I don't know. There could be a wall full of crucifixes. Cruciforms? Cruciformy crucifixes. Crucify. <laughs> Crucify. <laughs> no, that's a verb. Never mind. <laughs> they could probably be the plural of crucif- cruciformi. <laughs> Cruciformula. <laughs> okay, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> we apologize everybody out there. Well, yeah, no, I, it's like, this is the opening salvo of this book, Danielle. <laughs> like, after that prologue and this story, you're like, oh, I'm into this. <laughs> or not. <laughs> or not. But I don't know. I find it intriguing. It's definitely like, oh, how could it get weirder than that? Well, we're going to find out. Well, it certainly does, if I recall correctly. I know. Which is really impressive. <laughs> it is really impressive. That's super weird. This is like the most straightforward of the stories, I think, if I recall correctly. Oh, that's concerning. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> And I left out a lot to try to streamline it. Uh, you did a great so, job. Well done, you. Thank you. I, again, I do recommend people check this out because, as always, there is so much more in the actual writing than just the story I'm telling. I, the book does a lot of, as you saw from the prologue you read, a lot of really intense atmosphere and description and has you know a bunch of visual stuff. It's very different than just me like, oh, this is what happened. Yeah, if you ever want to understand the many layers of the Sam and Danielle friendship, you could read Hyperion and and understand it better, I think. It'd be like the layers of a Tesla tree. <laughs> <laughs> how, how would Rita Hyperion make them understand our friendship better, Danielle? Because you just have to imagine that I had to sit through hours and hours and hours of instant messaging of Sam telling me about this book. And you'll better understand to, both Danielle. Sam and me. <laughs> Danielle had to. And this is, and then I have to sit through hours and hours of your K-drama retellings. You know what? I don't feel bad about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say you should, but there's no reason you should try to shame me for telling you about Hyperion <laughs> once 10 years ago. It was a really, really long recap. It was. It's a really long book, Danielle. There's a lot going on. It's insane. <laughs> well, there it's we actually have it. bananas. <laughs> Watch some Korean dramas, read Hyperion, you've got it covered. That's, that pretty much is our friendship <laughs> in a nutshell. That's true. <laughs> 
I really hope that somewhere in the middle of my retelling of the Hyperion series, the TV show comes out and it's completely like nutso because that'd be so much fun. It would be fun. I would make you watch it. Oh, thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, I want to hear, Danielle, what you think is going to be. Uh, let me tell you the name of the next story oh, and you can gosh. try to tell what you think it's going to be about. I don't even think, remember who these characters are. The next story is called The Soldier's Tale, colon, the War Lovers. Soldier's Tale, The War Lovers. Who's telling it? Fedman Kassad. Oh, yeah. The bird. No. <laughs> well, yes. They're all birds, Danielle. That does not narrow it down. <laughs> I don't want to remember them in my head, though. <laughs> <laughs> I like how you took the one back of the Shrike is a bird. And you're like, I'm going to run with that. That's my anchor for, like, my, my, like, I need that anchor to keep me sane in this story. I often do that with your stories, though, because otherwise I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I don't know if that's my fault or not, but I'm sorry. <laughs> what was it called again? The War Lover. See, I can't remember the title. <laughs> the Soldier's Tale, colon, The War Lovers. Was he in some kind of, like, epic space battle? I, I don't know, Danielle. I haven't read that far yet. <laughs> You've read it before. <laughs> yeah, but, Danielle, do you think I can remember this insanity clearly? I just remember, like, vague notions. Do they all, like, have different planets and stuff that they're going to talk about that somehow will oh, yeah. tie in to the final product? There are going to be a lot of different planets named in this book, and they may all tie in to Hyperion. There's all going to be some kind of relationship to Hyperion. They're all going to tie in somehow. It's going to be very complicated. I think he was part of a time war. <laughs> time war? Yeah. Something to do with time. Let's do the time war again? Let's do the time war again, yes. <laughs> Just a step to the left, to the past. And then it's a it's a bomb to the right. <laughs> yes, they took... I don't know. I just think there's a time war involved. I love it, Danielle. I really can't wait to see what's on to tell you about it. <laughs> pretty sure. Pretty sure it's a plot. All right. Well, I don't know if anyone out there has as much antipathy towards Hyperion as Danielle does, but... <laughs> And Tesla trees. Tesla trees are the things that really bugged you the most about this part, wasn't it? It didn't bug me. I'm just curious how they protect themselves from their own fire-causing lightning bolts. They use the lightning. Right. It's to of burn the tree. down the forest. So you ha they have to be Redwoodian, as you mentioned. Yeah. Or, I mean, if, being fire retardant is fine. But I also think, like, if they're charged in a certain way, like positively charged or negatively charged, they're going to repel lightning bolts. Sure. So I'm not really, like, concerned that they're not struck by their own lightning. I completely buy oh. that. I'm concerned that they're not struck by the fire that they create. Yeah. Maybe some of them do die, Dale, but most of them survive. Who knows? I certainly don't. They're hundreds of meters tall. hundred meters tall. Do Tesla trees come back? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Good to know. Uh, it's my the only memory... thing I'm going to remember for the next time we go through this. <laughs> of these four books, Danielle, I remember like three scenes. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> and none of them are useful. <laughs> so everyone out there, get ready. I hope you enjoy the start of this insanity. And it only gets weirder from here, I promise. And uh, I hope you stick with it because I'm really excited to see how this goes. <laughs> And if you don't want to stick with it, you can listen to my weeks. <laughs> yeah, you, you can make me feel bad about myself. That's fine. I'll throw in some K-dramas for fun. <laughs> well, Who doesn't love that's going to be a Korean real challenge. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You can always stick with Danielle and you can write me letters about how much you hate myself. I do. That's fine. <laughs> Maybe I'll do a series, a Korean drama series in between your Hyperion Well, like series. interleave a K-drama series of like 20 episodes with my <laughs> Hyperion. Oh, yeah. That's going to like completely narrow our demographics down. <laughs> It'll be a really interesting season for us, Sam. <laughs> I have no idea how this is going to go, Danielle. This may be a mistake, but we're going to try it out and see what happens. It's going to be great. If I have to do any two or three parters, they're going to be have to be interwoven between Hyperion now. I'm sorry, everybody. No, that's absolutely true. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'll need a break. Who knows? Maybe you'll need a break. <laughs> that's certainly true. All right. Well, tune in in two weeks to hear Danielle recap what I just told her, which will be a lot of fun. Which will be literally the most terrible thing you've ever heard in your entire life. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my like, favorite parts about, about this birds. new format. <laughs> there's a bird. All I remember is that there's a bird, and, I, and I'm really upset that you knew what that bird was. <laughs> I can't believe how angry you were that I knew what a shrike was. I just, I, you said it like it was a normal thing to know. And I, I listeners, <laughs> if you that's knew a what point. a shrike bird was prior to this, please let me know. <laughs> no, that's totally fair. That's a totally fair point. <laughs> 
Actually, why don't you, you can do two things. You can write in and tell Danielle one of two things. Either one, how much you love Shrike, because that's cool. Or two, how the Tesla trees work. Maybe uh, solve that mystery for her. Yeah. Because I certainly can't. Yes, please do. If you want to do that, you can reach us at bookretorts.com. You can also tweet, Instagram, or Facebook us at bookretorts. And if you like what we do somehow and want to support more of it, you can do so at <laughs> patreon.com slash bookretorts. Patreon! Book and until next time. <laughs> <laughs> you got mad at me last time because I said book retorts instead of Patreon. <laughs> now you're doing both, huh? <laughs> I'm enthusiastic about both things, as I said then. I pr- you know, you're, you're a great hype person, Daniel. I appreciate that. <laughs> Go us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, until next time, I guess avoid Hyperion. Apparently people going there has bad things happen to them. <laughs> or Tesla trees. Yeah, don't get struck by lightning. That'd be bad. Were the Tesla trees on Hyperion? Yes. Oh, man. The recap's going to be terrible. <laughs> the whole the whole story of Paul Duray and the Bakura took place on Hyperion. I forgot that immediately. <laughs> they're like, they went to continents. Like, one was named after the horse, one was after an eagle, one was after a bear. There's like what? Ursus, Equus, and Aquilus. You didn't That's tell a, me that. I didn't tell you that. That's okay. stuff I left out. <laughs> like, because wait a minute. <laughs> those, are, those are all the details that I left out about like the geography and the names of all the continents. And cares. how like they have official names and unofficial names because who cares? Who cares? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really interesting in the story itself. It adds to the, to the flavor. But like, I don't have time for that. We don't have time for that. You don't want to hear about that, do you? No, we've already heard too much. Ouch. All right. Well, (laughs) gee, I guess I'll just go now, Danielle. Thanks. You're welcome. Bye, everybody. We love you. (laughs) Not me, apparently. We don't love Sam. No. Just the listeners. (laughs) Oh. All right. I'm sorry. Bye, everyone. Take care, everybody. That's Sam. (laughs) Everyone see how cruel you really are in this episode, Danielle. (laughs) That's okay. They've heard it before. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> All right, I think we're done there. We don't need any more outros. We're done. Here we go. Hello and ah, sorry. I'm still hoarse from the wedding. Uh huh. Excuses, excuses. I mean, it's not uh, excuses. It's facts. <laughs> this is gonna be extra special today because I've been hoarse for all weekend. You probably talked a lot and yelled a lot. It was very loud. It's true. Your family's very loud, so that seems unsurprising. Yeah, exactly. So none of this is surprising. Not a single one of the people in your family is quiet. Yeah, I know. It's a real thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, take two.